And it's quite interesting that a lot of people that do use the term popcorn lung don't really understand what it, what popcorn lung is. Um, and it can be a very lengthy discussion, but effectively what it is is, is is a very rare disease called bronchiolitis obliterans, which is caused by um, an irritation, a severe irritation to the lungs, usually from an external source, uh, typically from um, smoke and uh, particles in the dust. And where the term popcorn lung come from, it came from, a, it was a 2000, I think it's 2000, I stand in a correction. In 2000, there was a popcorn, microwave popcorn factory in Missouri that picked up eight cases of this very rare disease in very short succession. Hello world, welcome to the Vaping Unplugged podcast. Everything you need to know about vaping and tobacco harm reduction. Hello and uh, welcome back to Leaping and Pod Podcast. Uh, this is a special edition uh, that uh, we're preparing for World Vape Day, uh, which will be held on uh, May 30th. So let's celebrate together. Uh, today I am joined by one, uh, one of our uh, friends and partners, Kurt Yale, who is the co-founder of Vaping Saved My Life. Kurt, thank you so much for being here again with us. Uh, and uh, thank you for all you do. And I know you have a great story yourself that you've shared uh, numerous times. I was um, always very impressed to to hear. And actually, the name itself, Vaping Saved My Life, uh, says it all. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for uh, all that you're doing. And again, for being with us today. Uh, we're going to be talking about, um, uh, I wanted to you know, have a conversation with you about common misconceptions and myths that you've encountered around vaping and why do you think those exist? And um, just share your experience around that with us, please. Evening, Lika, and evening to everybody. And thank you very much. I'm deeply honored to be invited again to share, to share my thoughts and experiences. So yes, uh, thank you. Um, I think based on my, you know, I started uh, with my co-founder, Vaping Saved My Life in 2017. So we're no strangers to the number of controversies and the number of, of misconceptions around vaping. And since I joined um, a, as partner with uh, the World Vapor Alliance, I get to hear a lot more from other parts of the world too. But uh, South Africa has some uh, some of its own intricacies some of its own uh, little tweaks around things, uh, which are not different to what we hear from other parts of the world. So yeah, I'm good. I'm happy to share some of the some of the stories and some of the some of the insights that we've learned. Great, great to hear that, and thank you so much. Um, and I know you've um, experienced a lot of this in, in your work, but what are the most common misconceptions and myths that you've heard around vaping? I think, you know, in South Africa, the most common is to do with respiratory diseases. Obviously, top of the list is always going to be popcorn lung. Um, and then we hear things like water on the lung, which is quite frequent. And uh, I've also heard things blisters on the lung, um, which is also something that I've heard quite often. Popcorn lung obviously has been debunked time and time again. Um, and it's quite interesting that a lot of people that do use the term popcorn lung don't really understand what it, what popcorn lung is. Um, 
and it can be a very lengthy discussion, but effectively what it is, 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 is a very rare disease called bronchiolitis obliterans, which is caused by um, an irritation, a severe irritation to the lungs, usually from an external source, uh, typically from um, smoke and uh, particles in the dust. And where the term popcorn lung come from, it came from, a, it was a 2000, I think it's 2000, I stand in a correction, in 2000, there was a popcorn microwave popcorn factory in Missouri that picked up eight cases of this very rare disease in very short succession. And it was established that it was the diacetyl in the buttery flavor that they sprinkle on the popcorn that caused the disease. If we, that, that popcorn lung then transported itself in a, a report that was released, I think, in 2016, again, a standard correction, where they had tested a number of vape juices, and inside those vape juices, there was there was elements of diacetyl. And then the correlation appeared. You know, diacetyl was causing popcorn lung in the popcorn factories, and now we're finding diacetyl in e-liquids, and therefore e-liquids cause popcorn lung. <clears throat> However, what's a lot missing from this entire conversation is a very, very important element that is discussed and understood in pharmacology and medicine, and that is the dose makes the poison. So the levels of diacetyl are vastly different, and therefore there is severe risk and minimal risk. And when it was established that diacetyl content in these e-liquids were incredibly low, and the chances of getting popcorn lung from these liquids was almost none. Um, <clears throat> the other interesting, sorry, the other interesting thing is that we've understood since uh, also at the same time frame is that uh, diacetyl is found in cigarette smoke and sometimes up to 750 times more in cigarette smoke than in the strongest vape juice that was tested. And yet, in the 60 years, 60 plus years of understanding the impact that cigarettes have on, 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 the, on the human body, popcorn lung has never been one of those risk factors that's been highlighted. We don't see, don't smoke because of the cause of popcorn lung on cigarette boxes. We'll see nicotine is an addictive substance, smoking causes cancer, but we don't see smoking causes popcorn lung. And that's after many decades of research. So, but a lot of people don't understand it. And more shockingly is how many doctors don't understand it, um, which is a frightening thing. In terms of the other elements or the other things relating to respiratory uh, myths is something that's quite common called water on the lung. Um, I don't know what that means. Um, in fact, just the other day, someone sent me a rather rude message through our website um, to say that uh, we are causing nonsense and we're spreading lies because she in fact had water on the lung from vaping. So then I promptly asked her, I'm terribly sorry to hear that, obviously that's rather disturbing that you have water on your lung, but would it be okay if I um, see a diagnostic report, a medical report, or even better speak to the doctor that diagnosed you with water on the lung? Now, I was obviously being a little cheeky because I am married to a medical specialist, a pediatrician. So the water in the lung is something that I take with a bit of a pinch of salt. But I thought, let me let me just see if I can find out what this water in the lung is. 
because it was a direct message to me. Um, it turned out that she actually never visited a doctor. It was a self-diagnosis. She diagnosed that she had water on the lung. And at the same time, she also indicated that a very close Hi. friend of her had popcorn lung. So the same question, or same question went through is that, please could you ask your friend to either get in touch with me directly or provide me with a medical report or maybe just uh, give me the doctor's telephone number so I can have this discussion around popcorn lung to find out what tests were conducted and what, what provided them with that. Um, it's been uh, just over a week, I think, maybe even a week, um, no no message back. Um, so, yeah, the water on the lung thing I don't and the recent blisters on the lung I still don't understand either. So, Yeah, I think that's pretty common. I've heard that one in Georgia, here in Georgia, a lot as well, water on the lung, which... Uh, again, I also think it's something people don't really understand, and that's uh, pretty weird how a lot of people self-diagnose that. Um, I, I guess that's I think there's quite similar. I think there's a correlation. Also, we have got to be sensitive to the fact that, for example, like any other cons consumer product out there, there is a small element of people or small percentage of people that might have a sensitivity to something in the e-liquid. So there might be a PG sensitivity, there might be a sensitivity to the particular flavor, and it might not work with everybody. So we have to be sensitive to that and be realistic that there are people out there that might um, be a little more sensitive to certain elements or certain compounds in these e-liquids. But it's certainly not the experience that I've seen with the thousands of vapors that I've interviewed and had a discussion with most often or not, they see a very positive change in their life when they take up vaping and to try quit smoking or at least try um, a, a safe alternative. I agree. Uh, why do you think it's so easy for people to believe in such kind of misconceptions while there's, there's so much evidence out there that we and the uh, vaping activists worldwide always try to reiterate that there are there is um, like numerous articles and evidence that people can use to actually debunk those myths but people still believe in such kind of misconceptions so why do you think it's so easy for or why do people in general believe in th these things i think it's because there's been such a great job in terms of educating people around smoking. Um, and the reality is, is that when you inhale for a vapor uh, and exhale a vapor, it looks like smoke. Um, so it's not smoke, but it looks like smoke. So there's a lot of ingrained, almost like programming, that when you inhale something and exhale something that looks like smoke, it therefore more likely is smoke. Um, so a lot of people find it difficult to even understand the, that concept that one is smoke, one isn't smoke. Um, um, for lack of a better term, we all know it's an aerosol and not a steam, but a steam and smoke pretty much looks similar. So I think a lot of it's to do with the, the, the fantastic work that's been done around educating people around smoking and then a link, that's a, there's a link between that and tobacco and tobacco causing disease so forth and so on 
So I think that's a lot to do with it. And it will take time to, to educate the people. But more importantly, I think a lot of focus should move towards educating our medical fraternity around that there is a fundamental difference between the two. Then obviously we're getting a lot of people, particularly in the anti-tobacco, anti anti-vaping, anti-nicotine space that are using their ability and their resources to reinforce that misconception um, for a whole host of reasons. So it is going to be a difficult challenge and I think eventually reality will catch up. Reality has this unbelievable knack of catching up and, and then providing sufficient amount of evidence. And I think that evidence is growing daily now that there are distinct differences and we need to be very clear in all of our communication that vaping isn't 100% safe or without risk, but when it is compared to smoking, it is significantly less harmful. So we need to be clear and arbiters of the truth around these products and, and, and try to create that distinction, um, not only to the fact that there's a difference between smoke and aerosol or smoke and vaping, but there's also make it very clear that these products are aimed for one particular um, population group, and that is our people that are using combustible tobacco. Definitely. And um, I couldn't agree more with what you said about educating general population, but as well as um, medical workers uh, and politicians as well. We've encountered this a lot at um, politicians who actually make decisions how to regulate um, vapes but um, not have full information on or actual evidence and they're not making these decisions on, based on evidence that's available. Um, I think, I think um, another, sorry Nika, another thing is that yes. the, we noticed, if I noticed a bit of a flip in, in the narrative is when tobacco companies showed interest in vaping companies. So when they started looking at acquiring or purchasing vaping companies, that narrative had a bit of a switch. And because tobacco has such a checkered past and such a questionable past in terms of how they approach this topic in the past, in history, there's no doubt about it, tobacco companies did lie about a lot of things and they misled the public and they misled politicians and they misled the medical fraternity for decades. Um, so there's immediately that switch, that mistrust was then associated that tobacco companies are now actually vaping companies too and therefore they can't be trusted. Um, and unfortunately, um, that lesson, you know, once again, the, you know, if you're bitten once, the second time you're going to be sharp or stay away. Um, so, and we need to we we need to understand that you know things were done in the past that were questionable, and we should never forget about it. But we should never ever walk away from any science that's being presented. It needs to be tested, and unfortunately, because of that correlation or that link between tobacco companies and our vaping companies that is now becoming almost the the, the 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 gatekeeper or the checklist you know the first check is that are you associated to a tobacco company yes okay everything else is ignored which is incredibly dangerous um 
in terms of science and understanding the science. Yes, um, thank you for that. Um, um, and we see a, a lot that um, uh, we see that a lot that the, the vaping is attacked everywhere. And based on um, a lot of the decisions around vaping are based on, on those misconceptions or myths that people believe in uh, worldwide. Uh, people believe in, and one of them is actually that higher taxes on, on vapes, vape products, will actually somehow affect or improve public health. Um, I think yes, there is some truth. There is some truth around it. Um, the reality is, is that taxes do but dissuade certain individuals or certain populations from because it costs more. So therefore. You know, cost is a big driving factor in any element that we deal with society. You know, if we look at, uh, for example, um, any product, if a product is too expensive, then there's a natural move to either not use the product anymore or move to an alternative that is slightly cheaper or, or you know, less uh, has less thing, um, features or whatever. So if we look, for example, arguments like a cell phone, you know, there is a market for the latest and greatest Apple, but not everybody can afford it. So therefore, the price will then move people to um, less uh, known brands or less features or even an older model. So cost is a big driving factor. Um, and I think when it comes to public health, it has always been, uh, it's always been a tactic because it's, for governments, it's it's almost become an addiction, if if for lack of a better word, because uh, particularly in a country like South Africa, where taxes on cigarettes have been around for some time, and every year they go higher and higher, and some would argue that they're not going high enough. Governments governments become reliant on these taxes. We don't really see anything coming from those taxes in terms of smoking cessation, or in terms of of um, programs to to educate um, educate the youth around smoking and so forth, um, and we also saw that, for example, in the Master Settlement Agreement in the United States, where every every state gets a portion of the MSA funds. And if you look drill down deeper into those, you'll understand that a lot of those states get enormous amount of funds from these tobacco taxes, these MSA taxes but do very little in terms of um, education or tobacco awareness in those states. So they become very, very, and there's a whole host of information and literature around MSA and, and how it's been used and where it's been uh, tobacco bonds have developed from these things. In South Africa is a, is, is a prime example. We have taxes on these products, but yet South Africa has no cessation, smoking cessation strategy to speak of. Um, so they're pocketing the money and they're using the, they're using the, 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 the device or the, using the term that these taxes help with the, with public health, like, you know, the hospitals, the cost of smoking to, to individuals, so forth and so on. Um, 
So I think it's really, it, it, it's, it's always been a, a good way to try to dissuade individuals from uptaking or sticking to it. Unfortunately, there is an element, particularly in the Southern Africa environment, where the illicit trade had saw the gap. And not only because there is a, a need for these products or de a desire for the products, but there's also a very, very low resources in terms of enforcing these laws. So in South Africa, currently anywhere between 54 and 70% of all cigarettes consumed in the country are illicit products, void of all tax. Um, and because the country doesn't have an enforcement or law enforcement that can cover or cater for that particular um, surge of illicit products, a lot of the South Africans don't purchase taxed cigarettes, they go and buy their products off the illicit market or the black market at significantly low prices. Um, so tax actually counts for nothing now in South Africa. Cigarette tax counts for nothing. Very few people in South Africa smoke a taxed cigarette. The majority are smoking illicit cigarettes. So in terms of public health, in my view, that is a lose-lose, so there's nothing going to the fiscus. There is people smoking more because now, for example, a box of cigarettes, which is significantly even up to a tenth of the price of a regular box of cigarettes or a taxed box of cigarettes, we've, we probably would find people smoking more. Um, of these pro of these products, so there's a lose lose from a public health scenario, and unfortunately, with the recent announcement or the on the first of June, we'll see e-liquids being taxed significantly. Um, I'm afraid that we're going to see the illicit trade break into e-liquids and vaping devices too. That's very very unfortunate to hear. Uh, have a similar situation here in Georgia as well. And it has, as you said, it has exactly the opposite effect and uh, for creating uh, black markets or illicit markets, as you mentioned that. While we want vapes to actually be the alternative to cigarettes, I think it's important to also reiterate that, um, as you said, we're not saying that vaping is completely uh, risk-free, but what we want to underline is that it should should be a tool for harm reduction and uh, smokers should have an option to switch to vaping um, uh, if they want to quit smoking and uh, raising taxes higher uh, for uh, on vape products uh, actually has completely opposite effect uh, which is something we've seen all over the world uh, yeah. I, think. I mean if, if you just think about it um, one of, one of the you know the driver is always going to be cost and if we look at if we take for example um, people that are wanting to watch their food intake so therefore they choose things like sugar-free alternatives or um, or low fat or low salt alternatives to to ensure that they uh, re reduce their risk for cardiovascular or cardiovascular and heart disease um, you would it's not unknown to see that those prices are similar uh, and then it becomes a, a, a pure choice 
Um, so if you go buy a can of Coca-Cola, a can of Coca-Cola sugar-free will be the same price. So then it's left to the person's choice. Unfortunately, when we're starting to see things like tobacco, where e-cigarettes now become more expensive or e-liquids will become more expensive, naturally the people will move to the, the more harmful alternative. Um, so I think it's very short-sightedness, um, and I think uh, there is a lot behind it that hasn't been uh, completely thrashed out. Um, but and once again, reality will catch up. There's always going to be that one outlier like the UK um, and New Zealand um, and Sweden that eventually will provide sufficient amount of evidence that would make the other um, parties in this discussion look a bit foolish. And that's one thing a politician doesn't like to look is foolish. So, um, and also if we look at medical the medical fraternity or the academic fraternity, they too have reputations. So therefore they don't want to look foolish either. And that's what reality will do, is it will eventually highlight who were foolish. Uh, unfortunately, we're talking about lives here. So it's, uh, that foolish mistake will cost lives. Yeah, so that's a good what, what do you think should be done, uh, should we do to fight those misconceptions and bust those myths that exist around vaping, which we see it's worldwide quite similar? Well, if we had a nice big bat signal, I'd flash it into the, into the night sky. But the only thing that we can do is just keep telling these stories, keep sharing the information, uh, keep sharing the evidence, um, and you know, just keep slogging along, keep, you know, chipping away. What a lot of people don't understand is that any of these interventions do face uh, resistance. Nicotine replacement therapies faced a very similar resistance um, in the 80s, the early 80s. It took them a little while to convince the world that this is probably the route to go. And funny enough, some of the very same things that we deal with um, today in terms of health concerns, youth uptake, were, were, were uh, part of the discussion or part of the discourse in the early 1980s. So I can still remember when um, microwave ovens and cell phones came into the country, how many old people, people in older generations, used to be petrified and talked about brain cancer if you use a cell phone or, you know, microwave will burn away your skin all those kind of things. Eventually, reality catches up and it becomes part of the norm and part of the normal day discussion. And it's backed by science and evidence that, and eventually it just becomes another part of our day-to-day -day life. Um, for a large part of me, I think Clive Bates speaks a lot of sense, is that when nicotine is considered as just a normal recreational drug that has the same social acceptance as a cup of coffee, um, things become, you know, very different, a very different discussion. Um, but we also see peaks and troughs in a circular motion that every now and again, someone's going to stick their head out like a flat earther and say, well, actually, we're all wrong. Um, but those people are dealt with, you know, very quickly because the evidence is so overwhelming. So 
I think what we should do is just keep doing what we're doing, being as kind as we can, but firm, and showing that this evidence is, needs to be looked at, and it needs to be tested, and it needs to be quantified. And I think when we start getting people to realize that this is, in fact, a, a very good thing for dealing with over a hundred years of epidemic, pandemic, for lack of a better word, um, we'll start seeing traction. And I believe traction is already occurring. Uh, I think the UK's bold move to swap and uh, swap to stop is going to be the cat amongst the pigeons. I'm looking forward to what that's going to happen at COP10 this year in November in terms of what the UK as well as New Zealand bring to the table because I think a large part of that um, conference of the parties is going to be focused on harm reduction, tobacco harm reduction. So I'm looking forward to what uh, the all-party group in the UK brings to that. Me too, and also really looking forward to that. And um, as you said, uh, the, we talked about a lot of misconceptions and myths, but there are also great examples that exist, like UK or Sweden that have actually successfully achieved uh, their smoke-free goals uh, or are well on the way to achieving those. So we can definitely um, learn from those examples from, from other countries. Um, and um, yes, we, we will continue assuring your belief. I think it's uh, we need to continue to uh, raise our voices and spread the message. And sorry. <laughs> We will continue to to share uh, testimonials from papers around the world. Um, uh, follow us on uh, our social media: Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, YouTube accounts. We share those videos always. And if you have um, your story, you want to hear your story, you want to share your story with us, please feel free to reach out. We actually want to hear from everyone um, what um, their testimonials. So. Follow us and um, reach out to us. We're more than happy to hear from anyone uh, willing to uh, share their story. Yeah, we've got a similar platform on Vaping Save My Life. If you're South African and you have a great story, or even just a story around what vaping did for you, um, by all means, share. You know, Sorry, Lika, but currently we are working on a 12-week program where we're taking 36 smokers um, through the journey of quitting. And I had a fantastic meeting with some of them last night and asking them their experiences. And it actually is so heartwarming. And, and you know, it's the reason why I do this is because you hear somebody that's been smoking for 20, 30 years and suddenly, you know, literally with the, you can just hear the happiness in their voice on a Zoom call, how they've finally managed to quit smoking after all these years. Um, so it's those stories that need to be heard by politicians and academics and so forth. We're not just a number on a spreadsheet. We actually have families. We are people. We do have struggles. And one of our biggest struggles is to quit smoking. And this is not an unknown. You know, smoking is one of the most difficult things to quit. And if you have a method that enables people to help them, we should be exploring it. 
you know, we should, like we do with everything else, if there's something that we should understand, let's understand it and let's measure it and, and make sure that everybody is has the correct information and is communicated appropriately that these products and that products are incredibly successful if treated correctly. Definitely, and that project actually sounds really great. I look forward to hearing about that more. Um, it's very exciting. And again, thank you so much for all you're doing. And um, yes, there, there's a lot of evidence out there that um, shows why switching to vaping is actually um, um, better. But also there are lots of like thousands and thousands of testimonials from vapors out there that, that that's evidence in itself. We are yeah. each and every individual. One of us are evidence of ourselves, how we quit smoking through vaping and it helped us and made our lives and our health, improved our health. Well, that's the slogan um, of yes and no is we are the evidence. So nice. Very nice. Great. Um, thank you so much again, Corey, for joining today. And uh, again, thanks for all you do. Um, we'll continue to fight for our rights together and we'll celebrate uh, World Vape Day together as well. Thank you very much, Lika. And thank you to the World Vapor Alliance. I'm a very proud partner of the organization. Um, and I love being part of the family and to hear what's happening around the world and also gathering the support from, from the organization or the association in helping us uh, change minds. That's what it's about. It's about changing minds, changing minds of smokers, changing minds of academics, changing minds of, of politicians. It's about changing minds. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank, thank you, you everyone for tuning in today for a Vaping Unplugged a podcast.